The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and today my guest is Christine Berry. We spoke about people get ready, preparing for a Corbyn government, a new book authored by Christine together with Joe Gwynnon, which is published by All Books. We discussed the likely backlash a Corbyn government would face from the business class and what strategies the Labour movement can adopt to defeat its opponents. We also chatted about the possible lessons for the left from the Thatcher government's victory over the unions and the Labour movement in the 1980s, as well as Labour's programme for economic democracy. You can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, Soundcloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle, as always, is at Poll Theory Other. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping the show to reach new listeners. If you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. The show really needs listener support if it's to be viable in the long run. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Christine Berry has worked as a parliamentary researcher, was formerly the head of policy and research at Share Action, and until recently, director of policy and government at the New Economics Foundation. You can read an excerpt from People Get Ready on the Tribune magazine website, and you can find a link to that excerpt in the description of today's show. So we're currently in this situation where the Labour Party are ahead in the polls. Brexit seems to be having a pretty severe effect upon the coherence of the um, the Conservatives' electoral coalition. But even in the period before, you know, over the last you know few months, uh, they've been kind of neck and neck. Sometimes the Tories have been ahead, sometimes Labour have been ahead. Um, but all during that period, I've tended to feel fairly confident that Labour would form the next government. But in terms of what I worry about, my anxiety is much more focused on what it will be like if and when Labour do win. Because clearly there are, as you point to in the book, there are a whole range of issues which are quite troubling in that regard. The sort of general coherence of Labour's programme, the opposition of of so much of the parliamentary Labour Party to the Corbyn leadership, the hostility of of the media... So before we sort of go into more detail, could you say a bit about what you see as the key issues that that we should be thinking about in terms of making a success of a Labour government and perhaps even what that means? I think the the genesis of the book really came from exactly the same kind of sentiment that you've just outlined, right? That a lot of the debate was focused on the question of whether Labour could win an election, whether Labour could form a government um, and how to mobilise to make that happen. And our anxiety was much more the same as yours, that we have quite a lot of hope that it's possible that we could have a radical Labour government before too much longer. But the real sort of fear and the real danger isn't that we can't win, it's that we're not ready to win. And if Labour takes power 
before it's ready to take power uh, and for whatever reason isn't able to implement its program, that would be far more damaging, a setback to the hopes of the left, you know, possibly for another generation than us not being able to win the next general election, which obviously isn't to underestimate the importance or the urgency of mobilising to win the next election, you know, particularly with the severity of some of the challenges that we face from climate change to the rise of the far right. And obviously, you know, we we need to make sure that we have radical Labour government next time there's an election. But the real question for us is what happens after that? And that's kind of the beginning rather than the end of the job that needs to be done. So I suppose in terms of your question, what, what are the kind of big things that would need to happen or the big challenges? Um, in the book, I might as well just kind of go through the, the way that we break it down. So the first is is the platform. You know, do we know what it is that Labour government wants to achieve? And I think we argue in the book that actually there's been a lot more progress on that, perhaps than a lot of people realise, even within the movement. I think there's not a, not necessarily a, a real depth of conversation about what that positive agenda looks like beyond reversing austerity. But that we argue there is a positive agenda taking shape and we can maybe talk a bit more about that. Um, the second is really having kind of hard headed battle plans almost or strategies for how in practice you implement that platform, given that it involves a major rebalancing of power relations and taking on some quite powerful vested interests. Um, and we look at the examples of how previous governments, including the Thatcher government um, and neoliberals elsewhere, have prepared those kind of strategies. And then the third being being ready to sort of face down reaction, explicit reaction from vested interests who are threatened by that programme and, and being prepared for various kinds of economic warfare, really, that might result from that including the possibility of capital flight or currency crises or anything that um, that could be thrown at a Labour government as a result of that. And then finally, we talk about transforming the state and being ready to to face down the possibility of, of not exactly overt resistance necessarily, but um, a lack of cooperation or an inability to implement the programme on the part of the institutional machine itself, um, the bureaucracy and the civil service, uh, and being ready to kind of repurpose Whitehall so that it's capable of delivering that radical programme. And then finally, we talk about the role of the movement in all of this and being ready on the part of not just the Labour leadership, but the whole of the wider movement, that there is a sufficiently powerful social base to understand that programme, to push through that programme and to hold the government to account, really, when things do get tough and when it comes under pressure to water down um, its radicalism. Yeah. So, I mean, perhaps if we sort of go through those in turn a little bit. So, I mean, in terms of uh, Labour's platform and, and its and its radicalism i mean i, I the, the sense i get from the book is that the sort of the cool part of 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 what you see of the radicalism of the program is the efforts to democratize the economy in various ways um i mean i wonder if you could sort of go into a little bit of the detail about that but but also um in in terms of the perception of that aspect of labor's agenda it, it seems to me that it hasn't cut through very much and, and not merely that it hasn't cut through amongst the, the wider electorate um, but you know I'm on sort of a bunch of um, like Facebook Labour Party forums and the extent to which Labour's programme is, is seen almost solely in terms of an anti-austerity agenda um, and, and also in terms of a kind of like almost sort of revivalist perspective regarding the 1945 government is, is quite striking to me. And, and it, it does feel like, um, it, you know, if you're correct, that that, that, that agenda is, is more sort of well thought out and detailed than, than some people suspect. There remains the issue that it, it doesn't feel like it's been particularly well articulated and it, it just doesn't feel like it's that well known. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. And that's really been underlined for me, actually, since the book's come out, um, that uh, some quite kind of close friends and colleagues in and around the movement, people that are quite politically engaged, 
um, are saying to me, you know, they've, they've not got past chapter one, which is where we kind of set out what we think the program is. And they're saying, oh, I'm learning so much about the new economic thinking that's going on in labor. I had no idea about any of this. And, and for us, that's almost just the, the groundwork of, okay, well, here's the program. And the meat of the book is really about how you implement that program. Um, you're absolutely right that, you know, even within kind of quite well-informed um, politically engaged circles, there, there isn't a depth of conversation about this. And there's a kind of irony of that, right? If we're saying that the program is about economic democracy and about participation, the fact that that's not really an agenda that has been pushed from the bottom up and from the grassroots in Labour, but that is kind of being developed from the top down by quite a small circle of policy wonks, really, um, and and a lot of thinking going on on the part of John McDonnell and, and people around his office. There's a bit of a, a sort of paradox there, I guess, which is why one of the things we talk about in the book is is the need, which I know is a bit of a buzzword on the left at the moment, um, for much more political education um, and much more serious kind of efforts to cultivate movement, debate and discussion around these issues um, so that it can be an agenda that's driven much more from the grassroots. So I definitely agree on that. I guess the other part of your question was, well, what, what does this uh, idea of economic democracy actually mean? And I think you sort of touched on it in what you were saying, that really it's about it's about going beyond a return to the spirit of 45, really, um, that this is the accusation that's often levelled at Labour when people talk about things like nationalisation, so you just want to go back to the 70s or you want to go back to the 50s, and that actually that isn't the programme, really, um, that uh, both Corbyn and McDonnell at various times have been quite clear that their sort of politics really isn't about replacing distant, unaccountable private elites with distant, unaccountable public elites, that they have quite a, quite a kind of solid critique of that model of nationalisation. And what they're really interested in is exploring new models of public and common ownership that are much more localised, more decentralised, more participatory. So you have Corbyn talking about, you know, passengers being in control of the railways. You've got an energy policy being developed that, yes, does have an element of of national public ownership, but also has a big role to play for municipal sort of city level public energy companies and for community energy renewables cooperatives. So those are a, a kind of couple of examples. And then when it comes to the private sector, you know, a lot of thinking that's um, being done about how to scale cooperatives and employee ownership. Um, so really a politics that takes much more seriously um, the value of democratic participation and control by workers, by citizens, um, in owning and controlling our common resources and um, the private sector and the economy, where the 45 nationalisations were, I think, really much more about the, this argument, really, that, that public ownership would make industries more efficient, which is easy to forget, right, because um, of 30 years of neoliberalism having kind of hammered home this message that, that public ownership is massively inefficient. That was a big part of the argument in 45, was this would make the economy run better that private elites were incompetent, public ownership would make the economy run better and the fruits of that could be distributed to everybody and everyone would be better off. Um, whereas I think the new agenda that Labour is pushing is, is much more about the value of democracy and of democratic participation and takes that a lot more seriously. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose um, a difficulty in terms of, um, of, of reaching people with that message is the conceiving of government in that way, you know, perhaps conceiving of government in terms of helping to enable democratic participation and build people's capacities 
is just so alien to the entire political culture. You know, the government, I think for, you know, for so many people is conceived of in a sort of paternalistic way. And if you're, um, you know, a partisan of the Labour Party, it's almost like, uh, you know, Labour is the good parent as opposed to, you know, the, the, the mean, vindictive, uh, conservative parent, that kind of, kind of thing. Uh, so, I mean, t- to what extent do you think it's a problem of, of, articulating this agenda and, and to what extent is it is it more that it's just it's so outside of of the mainstream of of people's sort of um general conception of of, of governance uh that it just makes it a very hard thing to do because it just a- appears despite its uh, sort of historic background it, it appears new and not in relation to historic trends i think yeah i think that's really true um as part of the framing the economy project a couple of years ago which i worked on with the new economics foundation and the new economy organizers network we did some focus groups around how to talk about the economy and one of the ideas that we tested was this idea around democracy because we were looking at how you communicate the idea that the economy has been captured for the benefit of a few and needs to be reorganized to work for everybody and we found that talking the language of democracy in relation to the economy just really didn't cut through at all with the people that we spoke to, which obviously was, you know, kind of a very small sample of people. But it was striking for me as part of this kind of circle of wonks to whom it's obvious that economic democracy means public ownership and co-ops and all the rest of it. They basically thought that we were saying we should have referenda on everything. And they were like, well, that's a terrible idea. And that was kind of the only way that they could conceive of the idea of applying democracy to the economic arena, because obviously, like you say, that there just isn't a tradition of these things. and There hasn't been a debate about it in any serious way in the public domain. Um, so how you deal with that, I'm not quite sure, but I agree. It's definitely a major challenge for Labour and, and thinking about the kinds of language that they can use and the kinds of flagship policies really that can carry that story, I think is an important thing to think about in that respect. So this is kind of what Thatcher achieved with Right to Buy, right? So, hmm. which at the time was just as radical a transformation of the public discourse and the, the political debate and the boundaries of the possible. Um, but she kind of carried that agenda through these really powerful flagship policies like Right to Buy that kind of told a story about the kind of nation that we wanted to be um, the kind of citizens and individuals that were going to make up that nation or, you know, property owning democracy and all the rest of it, people painting their own front doors, but also kind of gave millions of people an immediate stake and an immediate kind of tangible stake in that agenda. They could see how it was benefiting them. It wasn't just a kind of abstract story that you had to understand on some theoretical level, but you you were kind of personally engaged with millions of people were. And, and I think that was very successful for her at kind of turning around the discourse. And one of the things we talk about in the book is, you know, is is there a way that Labour can find their alternatives to right to buy? Um, and one of the ideas that's been mooted on that is this idea of inclusive ownership funds, which would be a policy that would gradually give workers a stake in the companies that they work for, which kind of does, I think, carry that story about what economic democracy means, but in a way that would give millions of people working in the private sector a kind of um, immediate stake in that. Hmm. I mean, in, in terms of um, the inclusive ownership funds, is, is there sort of an issue um, around the extent to which people sort of identify themselves primarily through their work? I mean, it's, you know, it's argued that that has sort of declined significantly and perhaps the relatively sort of fluid nature of the labour market these days makes that in some respects less appealing than it might have done, say, in the, in the 1970s when you, you know, when you had the Swedish government, uh, Swedish uh, Labour Party um, arguing for something similar. So I think it's definitely true that people identify less with the particular job they happen to be doing at any given time. But I suppose the thing with inclusive ownership funds is it does give people, as I understand it, a kind of immediate stake in the dividends of that company, at least for the time that they are working for it. 
in the same way that you know you have the right to accrue a private pension I suppose with the company that you're working for which you know gives people a benefit regardless of the fact that they switch jobs quite regularly I have all kinds of issues with the private pension system which is massively off topic so we won't go into them here but I mean uh, I guess that the concept of deriving benefits from having more control over your work I think has value regardless of uh, whether people expect to to stay at the same company for the long haul. So I think the idea of having some control over your work and some stake in the work that you're doing is something that does resonate with people, irrespective of the fluidity of the labour market and all the rest of it. And I think um, some of the well-being evidence is quite clear on this, right? That, and, and we all know it from our own lives as well. When you feel that you're sort of alienated from your job and that you have no control over the work that you're doing, uh, it's bad for your mental health, it's bad for your well-being. Um, and I think whilst people might not identify as as workers for a particular company in the way that they might have, you know, 50 years ago or whatever, um, we all do feel that sense of alienation from our work. And I think we all uh, would feel good about being able to do something about that. And I think there's a kind of new wave of workplace organising as well. You know, in the gig economy, companies like Uber and Deliveroo and some of the victories that they're having is, is kind of giving the light to this idea that it's no longer possible for people to organise as workers collectively or to have an identity as workers collectively because the labour market is so much more precarious and more fluid. So I think maybe it's more complicated than that. So there's this the chapter on the book on, uh, well, looking first at the battle plans that the, the Thatcher government drew up, um, in particular the, the Ridley plan. Could you say something a little bit about the strategy of the Thatcher government and, and the, the, the extent to which it was a very sort of conscious painstaking program for achieving the defeat of the left and, and, and breaking up the, the left coalition and, and the post-war consensus? Yeah, so I think um, I would really encourage everybody to read these documents that form the backbone of this strategy. So the Ridley Plan and the Stepping Stones report are both available online. They're not particularly long. You can read them in an hour or so and they're, they're very illuminating. I would really encourage anybody who's interested in this stuff to go and read them. And I think having read them, it's hard not to draw the conclusion that there was a kind of very concerted effort to formulate a strategy that, you know, that the Thatcherites had a very clear sense of what they were about in terms of rebalancing of power. They knew who their enemy was, was the public sector and organised labour. And they knew that they were trying to achieve a kind of wholesale reorganisation of the economy towards private ownership, towards entrepreneurialism, towards individualism and towards finance. And they kind of did strategize for that in advance of coming into power. So the Ridley report is essentially a battle plan for privatization. Um, and it's a it's a whole power analysis of where are the industries where the unions are weak, where, you know, it's it's wise for a Thatcherite government to pick battles early on that they can win and build some momentum and build their power. Where are the industries where unions are too strong to be taken on straight away, uh, where the Thatcherites need to lay some groundwork before they can do that. And that includes the miners. There's a whole discussion of, you know, how powerful the mine workers union is and what groundwork needs to be laid before they can be defeated, which very closely mirrors what actually went on to happen during the miners' strike. And it also talks about industries that are just untouchable for the moment, you know, that are too too powerful um, and that need to be privatised by stealth. He literally uses those words, privatisation by stealth, including the NHS. Um, well, so I, mean, I suppose that part of the project, it could be argued, is, is ongoing, right? Right, right, exactly. Um, so the repercussions of that strategy, I think, are still with us today, never mind in the 80s. Um, and the fact that that foresight was also there, that work was really done as to, OK, well, we're talking about a wholesale rebalancing of power in the economy, taking power away from those that currently hold it and transferring it um, to another group, changing ownership patterns that, you know, they understood 
that that wasn't just a matter of having the right policies and getting into government and implementing them. They understood that it was, you know, a massive shift in power that that would need to be kind of planned for. And they did that quite effectively. And the Stepping Stones report is the kind of equivalent when it comes to communications and narrative. Um, So that talks about how intimately linked to this strategy of rebalancing power was the need to kind of win the battle for narrative and shift the political discourse. So that was a strategy of really kind of discrediting the unions in the public debate, um, using people's discontent at kind of strikes and the winter of discontent and all the rest of it to kind of turn that from Labour's big asset into its Achilles heel and to kind of use that as the jumping off point to gain consent, mass popular consent for this programme. Mm. Um, and John Hoskins, who is a really key advisor involved in that report, he actually says at some point in it, and we quote him in the book, you know, it's not enough to win an election if it just reflects people's dissatisfaction with the current state of affairs. We have to win an election with a popular mandate to drive through this transformative shift. And I think that goes back to your earlier question about, well, is there really a deep understanding even in the movement, never mind the wider public, of this agenda of economic democracy. So I think the lesson of that is uh, Labour needs to come to power with a clear mandate to drive through this transformative shift and with the kind of battle plans and the strategies to to take on existing powerful interests and to enact that. Um, Having said that, I do want to just give one caveat to that, which is I think we really do have a tendency on the left often to overstate the kind of Machiavellian brilliance of the right and of the neoliberals um, and kind of then beat ourselves up and regard ourselves as slightly shambolic underdogs by comparison. And actually, one of the things I found interesting in researching this book was the extent to which, you know, even at the end of Thatcher's first time in government, John Hoskins, the guy who wrote the Stepping Stones report, he's lamenting the absence of strategy in exactly the same kind of terms. You know, he's, he's giving speeches where he says, you know, no thought is being given to how we make tomorrow's battles winnable as opposed to how we can win battles today. You know, this is the guy who's authoring the reports that we've been quoting, you know, as evidence that that strategy was happening. Um, you know, the, the guy who was running the uh, Institute for Economic Affairs didn't even vote for Thatcher in 1983 because he was so frustrated by her lack of radicalism. Um, so to the people that were within this revolution at the time, I think it seemed kind of just as messy and uncertain a victory as we might feel today. And I think that's really important to remember is that, you know, paradigm shift, when we look back in the rearview mirror, can seem inevitable, can seem like a neat and tidy process, but it never is at the time. And so I think it's important for us to not be discouraged by that in a way. Um, you have that great quote somewhere in the book where Thatcher, I think you're probably talking to her in a circle, says something like, we're going to have a minor strike. So yeah, there's this very kind of conscious um, decision to provoke a crisis in order to to win broader gains and to, and to defeat the left. For, for a Labour government, and I think you could certainly see tendencies within the leadership including, you know, the very inner circle, I think, t- towards trying to placate finance and to placate the media and to always show an image of, of, of moderation. But, you know, it does, it does seem that if, if Labour is to be successful, it needs to provoke crises and it needs to enter into these sort of pitch battles, which it can, which it can win. I mean, would you agree with that? And what do you think the, the equivalent battles would be? You know, what would be the equivalent of, say, of, say the minor strike for the left? another really good (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so i think um we talk about this quite a lot in chapter three of the book i'm not sure we go as far as as having quite having an answer to what's the equivalent of the minor strike but i think definitely it's also our perception that there's a kind of strategy of presenting a moderate front if you like on the part of the labor leadership at the moment of, of trying to kind of 
per capita finance, you know, you hear all this talk of John McDonald's cup of tea offensive with the city and kind of trying to reassure the capital markets essentially that they've got nothing to fear from a Labour government that, you know, it's going to be uh, all a question of public investment that's going to stimulate the economy and that's all going to be good for them and that, you know, there's no tricks up our sleeve, we're not going to do capital controls, don't worry, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's kind of quite an understandable political calculation, really, for, you know, for reasons that we discuss in Chapter 3, that, that there is a kind of risk, I suppose, um, of backlash from financial markets that could destabilise a Labour government. And that's clearly the scenario that they're trying to avoid. And I think Thatcher also says, um, we quote her in the book, there is no embarking on a battle unless you're reasonably confident that you can win. And I guess this is something that my thinking has kind of maybe shifted on in the course of writing the book. That I probably went into it feeling, well, you know, uh, the city of London is the equivalent of the unions for us, right? It's the um, star, like the powerful elite that we need to be taking on. And probably the only way you're going to do that if you're a radical Labour government is to do it on day one, because that's when you're going to have the political capital to do it, unless there's another financial crisis, right? So things like forcing separation of retail banking from investment banking, so breaking up the big banks, you know, taking banks into public ownership or doing more with the banks that are already in public ownership, like RBS, imposing much stricter regulation on some of the more socially damaging activities of banks and supporting kind of public and community banks uh, as alternatives. That, that that would be kind of the broad shape of an ag- a radical agenda for banking reform. And my view would have been, well, you've got to be ready to go with that on day one, otherwise it's never going to happen. Um, but I think the lesson of the Thatcher offensive, and I think that, you know, in fairness to them, this is kind of perhaps the way that Labour are thinking at the moment is, well, if you do try and do all that on day one and you're not ready and those uh, institutions have the economy by the jugular vein, which is a phrase that I think John Hoskins, no, it was Ridley in the Ridley report used about the public sector unions in the 70s. You know, it's a comparable situation. He said they have the economy by the jugular vein and the only option is to pay up. And, and perhaps if you do try and do all that on day one, all that you achieve is to destabilize your government destabilize the economy and then you can't implement the rest of your program and i think perhaps that is kind of labor's thinking at the moment but i think what we argue in the book is well like the ridley report if that's your position you then need a really clear strategy for how over a period of time you are going to kind of create a situation where you can provoke that confrontation or that crisis and you can win um, right so you need to be kind of um, through industrial strategy, through starting new public and community banks or through using our stake in RBS or whatever, you know, you need to be building up the power of, of, of public banks, reducing the power of private banks um, and creating a situation where the economy as a whole is less dependent on finance so that you are in a position to kind of provoke that confrontation at a time when it's, when it's politically and economically opportune and you can win. Because I think our fear is if that's not happening, then that confrontation essentially kind of gets postponed indefinitely. And we sort of fear that the, the financialization of the economy and the power of the city is such a fundamental part of our kind of economic malaise and of the skewing of, of power and control in our economy that we are kind of skeptical of whether it would be possible to really implement this radical economic pro- program whilst leaving all of that untouched. We don't think that the two are, are compatible. So that would be the equivalent, I suppose, of the minor strike. Now, the question of practically how you go about that and when you go about that, I think is a conversation that still needs to be had in the wider movement. In terms of the sort of, uh, you know, making a, a kind of analogy between the situation of, of the incoming Thatcher government and, and uh, an incoming Corbyn government, I suppose one thing I find myself thinking about that is that 
in in some respects, it can sort of make our situation seem better than it actually is. Um, in in the sense that, uh, obviously, in the late seventies, the the unions were extremely powerful, but but nonetheless, the, the power of, of 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 business remains the kind of key determiner. In in the sense that a Corbyn government to to a large extent will sort of live live and die on on growth rates in the, in the same way that any any other government will do and given the overwhelming hostility of of not just finance but but business more generally my worry is that 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 analogy doesn't entirely hold i mean from from your perspective is 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 the way to deal with that to try and sort of disaggregate business in the sense of um you know trying to win over small businesses perhaps um yeah, uh, in, in a nutshell, that would be, I think, you know, um, we kind of touch on this in the book, that I think in this kind of agenda of economic democracy, there is the possibility of kind of breaking open these quite simplistic kind of pro versus anti-business dichotomies and kind of splitting our opponents and splitting that community, um, which again was, I think, something that, that Thatcher was quite good at. And I think you're already seeing, you know, the the business community fracturing over Brexit anyway, right? And And those kind of traditional... Um, alignments, I suppose, of business with the Tory party um, are starting to factor in quite interesting ways. Um, and I think the way that a Labour government would need to try and um, wedge those those things open is precisely the kind of opposition between small businesses and kind of businesses that are producing socially useful things and that are kind of willing to get on board with uh, an agenda of democratising how that activity takes place versus the kind of extractive unproductive sectors of the economy like the city of london um you know ed Miliband had a bash at this didn't he with the whole producers versus predators mm. thing and i think it, it didn't end well for him partly because that was a different time politically and there was sort of less political courage i suppose in the labor party to withstand the inevitable hostility from certain sectors of the establishment to, to labor pursuing that narrative but that, that basically is the kind of divide i think it's kind of makers versus takers producers versus predators um and I think there are possibilities, you know, including um, with this agenda around banking reform, right? Large sectors of the small business community are completely furious with the bank, um, closing branches, ripping them off. Um, you know, RBS, which is still publicly owned, scandal after scandal with their global restructuring group, which is supposed to help struggling businesses, but actually has kind of deliberately pushed them towards bankruptcy and then hoovered up their assets. You know, um, I think there are large swathes of the small business community that could be kind of mobilized and brought on board with an agenda of transforming finance and kind of a wedge driven between them and those big banks and and kind of giving the lie to these, I think, increasingly out of date neoliberal narratives that try and lump all of those interests together as a kind of homogenous business community that, you know, would stand to lose from a socialist program. Just one other quick thing on, you know, you said that a Labour government will live or die by growth rates. And I think this is kind of an interesting one. As you know, I used to work in New Economics Foundation's wellbeing team, um, and the whole idea that we need to go beyond growth as a measure of progress is usually seen as a kind of fluffy, hippie, like uh, not not a priority for a socialist government or unrealistic or whatever. But I actually think that this is really important part of understanding how we ended up with with Brexit actually, and with the kind of you know political alienation and anger that we've got is that for decades actually growth rates haven't been translating into rise in living standards for most people. Um, let alone a better quality of life for most people. Um, and people, you know, they want to see um, higher wages. They want better security at work. They want more time with their families, you know, policies like a four-day week. I, I think actually broadening that conversation and speaking to people's real sense that, well, like some economist over there is saying the economy is growing, but actually 
I don't feel like my life is getting any better or my family's life is getting any better. I'm kind of changing that conversation about what constitutes economic success so that it is more in touch with the things that really matter to people. I think could also be an important kind of political strategy um, for a Labour government around all of this stuff. Just going back to going back to Thatcher for a moment. So uh, as well as her sort of external enemy in, in, in the left and, and the Labour movement, she also had a, an internal enemy in, in, in terms of the, um, the sections of the Conservative Party that were still quite wedded to the post-war consensus and the sort of, uh, you know, kind of gentlemanly capitalist class with, with sort of deeper roots in, in Britain's feudal past, I suppose. And Part of her project was also was also defeating them. And when I think about Labour in government, you know, obviously there are there are very many challenges. But I think the one that worries me the most is the composition of the PLP, which is much of it is sort of borderline mutinous most of the time. And even at the level of of the leadership, you know, I, I think there are some Labour Labour politicians who are broadly on board with the Corbyn project, whose you know, frankly, whose level of political education, uh, I think, is a little bit worrying. And I, and I suspect in some cases, some of those MPs will have a somewhat naive view where they believe that, you know, Labour gets into government and prosecutes its programme. And that's how politics works. And, and, and I don't think they will necessarily be, be ready or, or able to withstand the reaction that, is, that, is going, that will be coming. Um, yep, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I, like... Um... I definitely think um, there's a general recognition that, that this kind of need for political education, even at the very highest levels, right? That there's Because those two things go hand in hand, right? The hostility of the PLP and the fact that you've got this bench of very inexperienced um, shadow cabinet members that, that could be about to take high office is, is precisely because, um, you know, that if you've got a Venn diagram of people in the Labour Party who have experience of running the country and people in the Labour Party who are sympathetic to the Corbyn project, the middle of that Venn diagram is virtually non-existent. <laughs> um, and, and that is kind of part it, it of It might be Ed problem. Miliband, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a couple of kind of former special advisors and, you know, um, behind the scenes people who are sort of helping out with some of these um, workshops and, and attempts to kind of train the, the shadow cabinet to prepare for government and to prepare for running departments. There are, there are one or two of those people, um, but it really is only one or two. Um, and I think that is an issue, just that, you know, not just the lack of sympathy, but the outright hostility right from the start of large sections of the PLP and of anyone who'd previously been involved in running stuff has meant that there's just no institutional knowledge being passed on, no institutional memory mm. of how to do this. And I think that's a massive issue um, for an incoming Corbyn government and, and one that needs to be kind of, yeah, it, it obviously is being kind of considered and, and that they're trying to, to tackle, but needs to be taken much, much more seriously as a kind of training project almost. And I think when it, you know when it comes to the hostility of the PLP, uh, I don't know how far I speak for my co-author on this, but this is one of the reasons that uh, personally I feel it's really important for us to be building bridges outside of the Labour Party and, and trying to forge a kind of broader progressive consensus with other like potentially radical parties, including you know the SNP and the Greens, and and kind of trying to build bridges with the more radical elements of those parties. At the end of the day, that's what hegemony is about, right? So it's about kind of trying to shift the dial and shift the political consensus. Um, in in the political arena more broadly, rather than just within the Labour Party. And if the Labour Party is able to kind of cling on to a majority government, I think particularly in a situation where you can't necessarily rely on the votes, even of large swathes of the Labour Party itself, being able to kind of broaden that conversation and build those bridges outside the party um, becomes even more important. And and in the book, we also talk about the role of the movement in that, right, of, of kind of creating 
as Hoskins talks about in the Stepping Stones report for Thatcher, right, if you've got a sufficiently strong wider public discourse and a sufficiently strong mandate to push through an agenda, it becomes a lot more difficult for elected members of parliament to go against that grain. Uh, whereas if you've just got a Labour Party that has kind of come to power, but without a very clear, wider understanding of what its agenda is, it's a lot easier for centrist and right-wing Labour MPs to make trouble for it. Um, so in terms of the, the chapter you have on on, on facing down uh, reaction to a, a Corbyn government, so you look at some of the the other historic examples. So in particular, you, you, t- you talk in some detail about uh, the French socialist government that came to power in 1981 under Francois Mitterrand with um, a, you know, a, very, a very radical agenda, but which was you know, sort of blown off course by, uh, by, by capital flight and, 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 and so on. So could you talk a bit about some of those historic parallels and the way in which you think uh, a Corbyn government might be able to, to, to combat the reaction that would... Um, uh, occur. I can. I should do so with a little bit of a disclaimer, which is that um, a lot of the stuff in that chapter about, particularly around Mitterrand and the experience of the French socialist government, um, was my co-author's bag. Um, that was done by Joe. So I can't claim any particular expertise <laughs> um, on, the, on the Mitterrand experience, sure. but um, I can definitely speak to kind of broader arguments of that chapter. So I think the kind of the general lesson that we draw from that is that if you've got a radical government that comes to power attempting to change the status quo to, to shift power relations, it is highly likely that it could be vulnerable, but particularly to kind of the vagaries of global financial markets. So we look in some detail um, at the experience of Mitterrand with that. And also we look at the Wilson government and the headwinds that a radical government might encounter from things like capital flight, um, precipitating currency crises. And with both Mitterrand and Wilson really, the ways in which radical governments have been kind of pushed to not just abandon their programme, but essentially kind of implement an austerity programme, a deliberately deflationary economic strategy to try and protect the value of their currency because of what was happening in international financial markets. And obviously, there are kind of particular circumstances that don't apply to Corbyn, that some of those historical parallels had, like Mitterrand being in the European monetary system. But we still feel that the, the kind of underlying issue that particularly in a very open economy like the UK's that is very dependent on finance and has a very outsized financial sector and is therefore very vulnerable to international financial flows, that this is an issue that we need to take seriously and think about how we prepare for. Mm. Um, that, you know, there's already talk of, of kind of capital fly and people moving their assets offshore in anticipation of it being taxed away or um, whatever by a, by a future Corbyn government. And, you know, since we wrote the book, uh, John McDonnell made an intervention where he essentially ruled out the use of capital controls um, by a future Labour government. Um, so uh, that's a kind of a development that's not reflected in the book because it, it happened after it went to press. But capital controls is one of the main things that we talk about in the book as something that a Labour government does actually need to be willing to, to countenance, right, to be able to kind of insulate itself somewhat from these kind of flows, speculative flows of hot money um, that could destabilise its programme. And the other thing that we talk about is the, uh, which is also something that, that John McDonnell has been talking about recently, is the need to kind of build, um, try and build a new international consensus. Like uh, measures like capital controls basically amount to kind of trying to operate a bit of a siege economy um, to kind of try and, and insulate yourself from this global financial system. And, and that may work for a while. And we give lots of evidence from other countries where it has worked, uh, contrary to popular wisdom. But it's obviously not desirable in the long run. right? And, um, you know, we suggest that if we're serious about 
building a kind of new left political consensus at home, we also need to be trying to do that internationally and, you know, have a have a strategy working with left movements in other parts of the world for how we are going to replace uh, neoliberal international institutions like the WTO, like the IMF, um, for how we're going to find ways globally to tax wealth, to regulate global finance, to tackle climate change, you know, all the other things that a single left government can't do on its own domestically. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.